We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to give you a little bit of a report tonight as well, if you don't mind, about the work in Liberia. And uh, I want to see how far I get in this message. It's always dangerous for me giving a report because that may be the crux of the message. But I'm going to be very careful uh, as I speak to you this evening. Let me say uh, at the outset, um, as I've been traveling around to the churches and giving, and I realize this is not really a deputation meeting, this is the first church really that I'm not doing a deputation meeting, but since I am here and back from Liberia, I want to take the opportunity to tell you a little bit about the work and even tie it in a little bit of what I said this morning. But I want to say at the outset uh, that both Joanne Greer, who is our full-time missionary there, and myself, want to thank you for your prayers for us as we labor in the land of Liberia. Liberia is in West Africa, and it's right on the coast there. It's just below the country that would have been, uh, I suppose, a British colony, or at least where you would have, uh, when you freed your slaves, you would have sent them to Sierra Leone, just north of where we're living. And then the country below us is Ivory Coast. That's a French-speaking uh, country. Uh, was, I believe, a French colony, and then just in from us is the country of Guinea. And as you know, perhaps, I assume you know, that back on August 5th, uh, both Joanne and I were forced to leave uh, Liberia because of the rapid spread of the Ebola virus. I was actually here at the Congress, and when I was here, the virus, it had been there already, but it erupted. Joanne was still back in Liberia, and then I was flying back with her parents who were going to take their holidays of three weeks to visit with her. And when the virus exploded, uh, there were some questions as to whether the Greers themselves would go. But at the last minute, they decided, well, uh, if it gets really bad, we can come back. And so they came out with me. And we were there for about two weeks when things got so bad that the president of Liberia uh, closed the borders uh, and several airlines began to cancel and there was a concern that we would get stuck in the country. Now that, that as I said this morning, when you come into a country that doesn't have uh, that established effect uh, of the gospel like Protestant nations, uh, there can be very quickly a tremendous amount of instability and people generally don't know how to think. That's not again because of the race. I know there's a lot of talk, what is wrong with the African race? I don't think anything's wrong with them. They are the same people as we are. They're created in the image of God, uh, but simply because they have the backgrounds of African traditional religion and not the gospel that flowed from the Protestant Reformation, they have a tremendous amount, therefore, of superstition in the way they think. Their society is very unstable. They did not even believe that Ebola was a reality. And so you're trying to convince people who are spreading this virus uh, that it's real. Then they believe the rumor that the white man was actually bringing the virus upon them as an experiment. And so some white people, workers that were actually trying to help them, uh, became targets. And uh, I don't know if any white people were killed, foreigners, but I do know some uh, West Africans were killed. Uh, their bodies were found dumped down a well. Those aid workers that were coming uh, to actually uh, find Ebola victims. And people weren't turning their relatives in, and then they were quarantining communities. 
And so we had to quickly get out of the country. The Greers left after two weeks of their three-week trip as we quickly changed their ticket. And then uh, our brother mentioned the dog uh, that we're trying to bring out. After our robbery, we were given a uh, police dog from here in Northern Ireland that was at the Dog College, which is part of the Northern Ireland Prison Service. So it's a highly trained dog in U.S. dollars, it, well, British pounds, it would be a 7,500-pound dog, money. Uh, so uh, we got it for free because of budget cuts. And that was a great asset. That's actually Joanne's personal protection dog. She flew over here to train with the dog. And it took a while for the dog to get used to her and not attack her. And then she came out and she thankfully agreed to train the dog with me. Uh, so that she didn't use that as leverage maybe to get her away. But the dog took to me very, very quickly with a lot of cheese and other treats and things. And uh, therefore that dog now is on our compound. But we were the only ones that knew the dog. And the dog wouldn't take food from anybody else. And so we had to get our worker trained. And we only had then four days to do that. That's why we actually didn't leave with her, Joanne's parents. Um, and so we thank the Lord that in four days we were able to train our worker and he's been caring for the dog now for the last eight months. His name is Armstrong. We don't know if he really knows the Lord. He would certainly come to church. He was a young man that sat outside of our bookstore in Liberia and I was determined to ignore him generally because I thought he was someone that was looking for a job and he kind of just kept showing up and so I invited him to church and one day we needed a job done behind the bookstore, cleaning up, and I gave it to him, and he did a really good job, and I was blown away. I was amazed, and I said, we need to hire you, and so I ended up falling for his trick, <laughs> but we did hire him. He's a pretty good worker. We're trying to help him even more, but he's the one that's been taking care of the dog and taking care of the compound, and eventually then, so we left. We were under 21-day uh, self-imposed quarantine, and then I started to travel around the churches. But when you think about the country of Liberia, the great challenge, as I said this morning, about the fifth commandment and this idea of democracy. And I mentioned you go around to the different Arab countries. And the answer, of course, is not in the Arab Spring like Tunisia, Libya, uh, Egypt. What happens when you have a nation that's depending upon democracy is the answer. Well, you get terrorists in government. Look at Egypt the Muslim Brotherhood, or you get Lebanon, where you have Hezbollah, those that are terrorists. And so the answer is not democracy. Now, obviously, the church is not the state. There's no perfection in the state. I'm not making statements even about your country. But you recognize there's a great difference in countries that have had the gospel, whether it's the fifth commandment or whether it's the eighth commandment in regard to thou shalt not steal, which talks about a work ethic. And you've got the Protestant work ethic. And that's greatly lacking in parts of the world where we labor. Well, what tends to happen when you look at a society that um, has some within it that have the gospel, you get a great deal of tension. South Africa is a perfect example. Uh, you look at the tension of apartheid. I'm not a supporter of apartheid, but apartheid is the vision, the division between two races, black people and white people. It's not so much a racial division historically, it's a division of two peoples to cultural backgrounds, not to races. When you look at South Africa, South Africa was a country that was established 300 years ago by the Dutch. And the Dutch, not just any Dutch people, but the Dutch that fled persecution during the Protestant Reformation, some of the French 
Huguenots as well, and they went down to South Africa where there were large tracts of land that were untouched. And they began to plow those lands, and they began to be, they became a breadbasket for all of sub-Saharan Africa, just like I said this morning, breadbasket in Britain and America for other nations, and yet we don't have the best land. We have a very short growing season. We have to beat the snow and all of that. Uh, Africa can grow crops year-round, and yet they don't. As I said this morning to someone at the door, you fly over Northern Ireland. What do you see? Farm, farm, farm. Fly over Africa. What do you see? I've done it many times. Jungle, jungle. Maybe a farm. Jungle, 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 jungle. Untouched. Now, if the jungle's there, things are able to grow. They get rain. They have good soil, but they, they generally don't do it. Why? It's because they don't have the historic background of a Protestant work ethic. And so it is in South Africa. You have those two cultures. That creates a tension because in South Africa, not only is it a different race which creates a tension, the black race, it's very visible to see they're a different race because of their skin color. And so it's very hard to get that racist mindset out of Africans or what we actually call in Africa tribalism. They're tribalistic even among themselves. But that generally erupted in South Africa. And that's true, the whites later on uh, became very prejudiced. But the background of that, was that tension. You have 5% Dutch people who have a work ethic, who are producing all the money, who established a government, and 95% of those that come from a background of African traditional religion. That is Liberia, where I'm laboring, really to a T. Although the 5% wealthy people are not white people, they're Africans. And the reason for that is because when your forefathers came to America, and fought the Revolutionary War against Britain, um, they began to write a constitution and establish a government, and they began to address, as they wrote the constitution, those constitutional issues like inalienable rights and, and, and freedom. And when I talk about inalienable rights, I'm not talking about today's idea of human rights, you know, that you have a right to housing and a right to education. That's nonsense. You, you don't have a right to housing by your government. And the reason you don't is because your government doesn't have any money. Your government gets its money from you, right? So when you say the government must give me, well, the government doesn't have any money. The government gets it from your neighbor. So therefore, you're standing at your neighbor's door and you're saying, ah, oh, my children have a right to education and you must pay for it. Well, if your neighbor wants to be charitable, they can give, can they not? Yes, they, they can. And they can give to housing to help the poor. They can, but you don't have a right to that. That's actually a violation of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. But when the Ulster Scots came to America and wrote the Constitution, they were addressing inalienable rights which is the idea uh, that God has given human rights, as it were, and that is those things that flow from the gospel, as I mentioned this morning, freedom as one example. And so they began to address that issue, and they recognized that they were wrong in the fact that they had allowed the institution of slavery to come into the society in America. Now, to be fair, when the Puritans first came to America in the 1630s, they arrested white ship captains and they sent them back to, that uh, they sent the slaves, I should say, back to Africa and put the white ship captains in jail uh, for man stealing because slavery was a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Uh, but eventually, slavery started to creep in at the end of the 1600s to America. You had it in your country. And there were a number of Christians that were uh, recognizing it was wrong, particularly leaders. In your country, you had in your government William Wilberforce. In our country, we had men like Benjamin Rush. Those, again, that had the Ulster Scots background. And began, 
than to preach against slavery. And they tried to get rid of it. But it was very difficult because it was so tightly linked to the economy. But eventually they, they succeeded. And a number of Christians, before they actually outlawed slavery, slavery was outlawed in the 1860s. We're talking about the late 1787 at this time and eventually up to 1822. Americans started to release their slaves because they, again, recognized it was a violation of the Eighth Commandment, man stealing. But they recognized also that the slaves released in America didn't really have a fair life. And so uh, there was still a lot of prejudice in America. And so what they did was they formed an organization called the American Colonization Society with the idea of helping the freed American slaves go back to West Africa or go back to Africa anywhere. But they ended up going back to West Africa to set up their own country and their own colony. And in 1822, from America, the first ship sailed with freed American slaves back to Africa. It was voluntary. Now, you will learn today in Liberia, in the public school, the state school, the elementary school, uh, you will learn that the Americans forced them out of the country. But that wasn't true. The history clearly shows that it was a voluntary thing. Do you want to go? And they thought they would get 100 people on the ship. They got 1,000 people that wanted to come. So in 1822, they sent the first ship back to Africa, of freed American slaves. The ship was called the Elizabeth. And when they got to West Africa, where the country of Liberia is, where I'm laboring with Joanne, uh, the indigenous West Africans would not let the freed American slaves onto the mainland. They, they forced them to stay on the ship. And the reason they wouldn't let them onto the mainland was very interesting. They knew that they were freed slaves, and the indigenous West Africans did not want slavery to end in West Africa. They were too busy making money at it. They were actually right near where we live. There's the St. Paul River, and there were a number of villages there, and they were going up and down those villages, murdering adults and stealing all the children and selling them to the slave ships. At this time, it was the French slave ships because the American and the British governments, navies, were working together to stop the slave trade in West Africa by that time. But it was the indigenous West Africans that would not let the freed American slaves onto the mainland. And so the freed American slaves stayed on an island just off of Liberia. And that island is still there today. You can go and see it. And what's interesting, when I heard about the island and this history, I was amazed at the name that the freed American slaves gave to the island. It was given the name Providence Island. I thought, well, that really tells you something about these freed American slaves. They saw the hand of God in preserving them. This was the island where they lived. That tells you they knew something about the Lord, these freed American slaves that came to live in West Africa. If you walk down the streets of Monrovia, Liberia, which is the capital city, again, where we live, and you look up at the street signs, you'll see Randall Street and Cary Street and Ashman Street and Gurley Street. I never knew why they named their street signs the way they did until one day I was in the archives of Princeton uh, University in America. Princeton University is, uh, was founded by the tenants from, where were they, here in Northern Ireland, uh, that history goes back quite a ways. It's drifted now, of course, but they have a very good archives. And I found a book in the archives called The History of Colonization in West Africa written by a godly Presbyterian minister, Archibald Alexander. Many of your ministers would have his books uh, in, in their library. 
And the book, as I opened it, the index listed these names of men, I didn't even realize, that were on the street signs in downtown Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, Randall and Gurley and Ashman. And as I read, I came to see that many of these freed American slaves, they knew the Lord and they feared the Lord. And they actually went back to Africa uh, after their freedom from slavery because they wanted to evangelize, give the gospel to those indigenous West Africans that didn't know anything about the Lord. Many of these freed American slaves, turns out they knew the Lord. They knew the gospel and they loved the Lord. And of course, eventually they got off of Providence Island. Eventually they bought a large tract of land from the indigenous West Africans and eventually they established a colony. And eventually they established a government and a country. They called it Liberia. That's the word liberty. The love of liberty hath brought us here. And really, they ended up obviously uh, becoming very, very prosperous. As I said this morning, whenever you as a believer come to Christ, you do not make void the law because you're saved by faith. You establish the law. And so in their lives, they established the law. They lived godly lives. Now, no history is perfect. There were injustices done. There were many shiploads of freed American slaves that came back to West Africa. But there were many that did know the Lord. You can go to Liberia today in the capital city, and you'll see the Lutheran Church and the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church and the Presbyterian Church. Historically, they were good evangelical churches. They're not so much today, just like our mainline Presbyterian churches, whether it's the Presbyterian Church here or the Presbyterian Church USA in America. They've drifted away from the gospel, but they were good churches. And so they established those churches. And of course, the freed American slaves were only 5% of the population. And that created a great tension because you have the 95% indigenous, just like in South Africa, looking at the 5% that came from somewhere else and legitimately bought the land. You know, there's much talk today about who are the original people and the indigenous, indigenous people. Well, quite frankly, I, I don't know how you rectify something, even some unjust war that happened a thousand years ago. You start down that road or today we're supposed to pay reparations for the slavery that was done in the past. Well, the, quite frankly, the black people that live today, they, they were never slaves. That was their forefathers. But at the end of the day, you still have those tensions in societies today. But really what the battle is about, it's about really wealth and this concept of what I said this morning, egalitarianism. Somehow that everybody's supposed to be of the same level of wealth. So you take a man that's a Protestant Bible believer and he's worked very hard. He's very honest. He has a good work ethic and you penalize him. You either overtax him because we must overtax the rich so they pay their fair share. Again, that's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. You can read Dr. Cairns' book on that, The Chariots of God, but we'll not talk about that. And, and you're supposed to give it to the man over here who doesn't do any work. Now, if he's legitimately poor, as I defined poverty this morning, as someone that could not meet their needs of food and raiment, that which they're to be content with, but their idea of poverty is, oh, I don't have the same wealth as you have. Well, that's the egalitarian Marxist mindset that says move all the wealth from the wealthy man over to the man that doesn't have because we all have to be equal. And at the end of the day, that, again, is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And that's the tension you had in Liberia. Those that didn't have and those that had. That tension exploded in 1980 
when an indigenous master sergeant in the Liberian Armed Forces broke into the presidential mansion and murdered President Tolbert, who was a descendant of the America Liberia, we call him the America Liberian, the Freed American Slaves. They murdered him. And the reason they murdered him was because he had uh, was trying to teach the indigenous people to grow their own crops, especially their staple food, rice. They had all this land in Liberia, 4 million people in the country. It wasn't that many at that time. That's what it is today. And they were importing their staple food from a foreign country. And President Tolbert, the Americo-Liberian president, said, you know, you need to grow your own food. The president was keeping the price low enough for the people to afford it by subsidizing it with tax dollars. But he said, the indigenous people need to see the real price of, of rice and how much it's costing uh, to bring it into the country when they could grow it here and may, it would be cheaper. And so he took the subsidy, government subsidy, off the rice so they could see the real price. Instead of growing rice, which he thought they would do, they murdered him. They burned down the city of Monrovia. And eventually then what you had was 14 years of civil war. It was during that time, and this is some of the history of the country. I would have said this this morning, but my message was going to go too long. I always... What I'm saying here is what I say on the tail end. I'm sorry if you weren't here this morning. I'm not going to go back and say all that again, but you can get a sense of where the country really is, is, is going in this regard. But when you look at the country then, you're dealing with civil war. And it was a massive civil war. It was a bloody civil war. It was a horrible, brutal civil war. Many child soldiers, they would kidnap young 8, 9, 10-year-old children and they would put them into the war. Joanne came around the churches and showed some of the video footage of the war. Now, if you know anything about trying to put together a documentary, if you want to buy film footage from the BBC, it's 80 US dollars per second. All right, so if you want to go and a guy who risked his life during the Civil War in Liberia and you want to buy the footage from him for a one-time use for two years only in your film, you're at $25 US per second. So we spent about $5,000. We shouldn't tell people that. But anyway, I can spend my money the way. We spent that for the deputation video to show you a little bit of the war and children that were interviewed to tell their story and, and, and what the war was like. It was a horrible, horrible war. That war ended when one of the warlords ended, ended up becoming the president of the country. You know him because he's in your country today. Uh, President Charles Taylor. He was put in the International Court for blood diamond activity in Sierra Leone. He was tried and Britain agreed to house him for life as a prisoner. But before he was put in prison, he became the president of Liberia and he won the election on the campaign slogan, I killed your ma, I killed your pa, but vote for me. And the people did. They put him into power. And during that time when President Taylor became uh, the head over, really a dictator over the whole country of Liberia, um, he was murdering a lot of people. That's why he had to use that campaign slogan, because everybody knew he was a butcher, but they were afraid of him. Some people liked him. The reason they liked him, it goes back to this whole egalitarian idea. It's because he was murdering people in Sierra Leone, stealing blood diamonds, you know, blood diamonds, Google that if you don't know what that is. And he was using the blood diamond money to subsidize the prices in the market so everybody could afford food. 
So basically, you're violating the Eighth Commandment on both accounts. And that's what he was doing. And so they put him into power, even though he was a butcher and a murderer. But there was one preacher that didn't like him. And that preacher was invited to come to a prayer meeting in the massive uh, stadium just outside of Monrovia in Painesville, where we live. And when the preacher came, the prayer meeting was actually a prayer meeting that was called by the religious leaders in the community uh, in the capital of the city to pray for the war, the civil war to end because it was getting so bad. Most of the adults, the older people in Liberia have died from the war. It's mostly young people uh, today. That's the majority of the population because the war destroyed them all. And so he came, this preacher, to the prayer meeting. And he was, as he was sitting on the platform in the prayer meeting, he looks, and who should come in the door but the president of the country, Charles Taylor. And this preacher was against Taylor. And Taylor came up to the platform, and this preacher then was asked to get up, would you begin the prayer meeting? And he says, I didn't know what to pray, because if I prayed what I should have prayed against this president, I would have been killed. He didn't say what he prayed, but that preacher did end up praying. And that preacher ended up uh, becoming a target of the government in Liberia and Charles Taylor. He also preached a message that someone copied and put in the newspaper. And it was a message then that was perceived. He said he was misquoted, but he wasn't happy with the government, this preacher. Uh, it was perceived as being against the government of Liberia. And so he became a target. Of the, of the president, and he had to flee the country for his life. And so he came to America. Uh, the American government gave this preacher asylum. His name is Chester Matadi. And one day in America, he was at a train station, and there was a mentally challenged young man from our free Presbyterian church that was doing what he could. You might say, what can a mentally challenged man do for the gospel? Well, he couldn't speak very well, but he could give out gospel tracts, and that's what he did. And this Liberian preacher got off the train, took the gospel tract, saw the address of our Free Presbyterian Church in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and started to attend the church. You know that church? That's the church where the Reverend John Greer was for a number of years. Dr. Mark Allison's there now, who's the chairman of our mission board. And very plainly, uh, he began to attend. And he invited our church to come back then uh, to Liberia. He had started a number of churches and he had started a Christian school and he had a great influence. Chester was just out with us recently and I didn't know much about him and he asked me he had to get some government paperwork done. Now he has had a stroke. He's not going to be able to come back to Liberia uh, as a minister but he took one trip. He had never been back since the Civil War. He was even a little afraid for his life. And he asked me to take him one day down to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And uh, as we got there, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Everybody knew him. Not just government officials, but people that were transacting business in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. People that had tears in their eyes and they would say, Ch they would just stand there where their mouth would drop and they would say, Ch Chester Matati, I thought you were dead. <laughs> I thought you were gone in the Civil War. Chester Bertotti, I went to your Christian school, some young uh, fella came up to say, or I was saved in your church. Everybody knew him, and the Lord greatly used him there in that country. And so at the end of the day, Chester invited our denomination to come back, and he wanted us to be a part uh, of their, uh, their church, to be a part of ours. And so a number of men went out 
Dr. Allison, one of his elders, they had a great difficulty getting there because this was 2006. The war only ended in 2003. That's only three years. The whole country was collapsed. There were hardly any flights going in. The United Nations had 15,000 peacekeepers in the country, uh, but eventually our team went. And one of the men that went on that team was one of your men, George McConnell. You call him Book George here. George has a great burden, and he has a burden for, well, he read about Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation. Luther was a big, big believer in the print ministry and the literature ministry, and so George has always had that burden. And so George started uh, a bookstore when he got out there. Now, George found is George has worked in Africa for many, many years. The team would come out and then leave and then come back six months and leave and come back six months. And it was very hard to get a bookstore running. The bookstore is like a, a business. And at the end of the day, the store struggled for many years. Quite frankly, I would say it publicly. I have no problem saying publicly. Some of the money went missing. And that is, again, that's the, what did I say this morning? The Cretans, they're, uh, they're always, they're, they, they, they say this about themselves, their own prophets. They're always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. That cultural background, not that race. Man, you got to be, today, everybody's so touchy. But the cultural background. And at the end of the day, George then came out and the bookstore really... Uh, is uh, a store that struggled and collapsed. When, when, I, when I ended up coming, and that, that store ran for three, four years, when I ended up coming to Liberia permanently, George said, let's try to get this thing running. I said, well, George, let's turn it into a profit-making bookstore. And what that means is you can still be a nonprofit and make profit. Obviously, you've got to pay your bills. Someone's got to pay them. And so that's what we did. The question was then, you know, how can you actually function in a war-torn country uh, and run a bookstore on profit? What we decided to do was, of course, we have $1 U.S. Bibles for the poorest of the poor. They need the Word of God. But we also have $400 U.S. dollar genuine calfskin uh, leather pulpit Bibles. And so we started to carry all kinds of Bibles, really good leather ones and very cheap paperback ones that anybody could have the Word of God. And we started marking the prices according to what it would cost to get them into the country and the import duty and everything. But how do you get people to your store? Well, one of the ways to do it is to advertise. You've got to advertise. But how do you advertise? Well, in Liberia, there's no internet. And in Liberia, there's no uh, really television. Uh, there is internet, but people just check their email in a cafe. They're not going to come to your website and surf and look for books. They don't have a credit card like Amazon. They're not going to buy books on that. But everybody listens to the radio. And that's one thing I didn't realize. Uh, everybody in their mobile phone, they have an FM tuner. And so they can listen to everybody listens to radio. And I found out that everybody listened to a large, large government radio station. It's a 10,000 watt FM transmitter. It actually beams up to a satellite and comes back down into the country of Liberia to five repeaters across the whole country of four million people. And I went down to the station and I talked to them about, you know, about doing uh, a commercial 
on their station, and they were very agreeable to it. We did the commercial with some Liberian radio television students to see if they could do it, and the commercial, the station rejected it. They said it wasn't professional enough. I had done some radio television when I was a student at Bob Jones University, and uh, they suggested, well, why don't you do the commercials with your voice? People do like an American voice. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And I remember when I was a student, there was a, a radio ad in America that was the most successful ever in the history of radio, radio advertisement. And it was successful because it was a really personable ad. The guy who actually read the script just off the top of his head ad-libbed something at the end uh, that wasn't actually written in the script. It was actually a commercial for a motel chain in America called Mo or Hotel. I don't know what you call it here, but Motel 6. And he would say at the end of the every commercial he did, and they were all different commercials, he'd always repeat the same phrase. He'd, he'd say his name, I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll leave the light on for you. So it was very folksy, and I thought, well, I'll do the same thing. And so I did. I, I said, uh, I'm Dave DiCanio, and we'll look forward to seeing you. And that was at the end of... Every single commercial, we did a whole different type of, some of the commercials are funny. And I found that after we started airing them three times a day on the massive government station across the whole country, and on a massive Christian station, that wherever I went, everybody knew me. I would introduce myself, I'm Dave DiCanio, and they would immediately stop. Say that name again. And it was happening over and over again. I was, I was four hours in the interior going to one of our churches, and I'm on the street, and I don't even know the person. I say my name, and she, you're that guy on the radio. You guys have the bookstore. We found we went from 10 customers a week to 10 a day. We were able to triple the salaries of our workers, and you can do that in a nonprofit as long as you don't pay ridiculous salaries. That's not legal in any nonprofit, but as long as you're not paying dividends to shareholders, all the money has to come back into the store, as long as your salaries. So we tripled the salary based not on the government's minimum wage, based upon my own minimum wage, which we're a private business, we can figure that out, and uh, therefore we pay them well. And they're happy, and it keeps them honest, and they're not tempted to steal, even as Christians, when they're in hardship. We decided to put an air conditioner in the store. And one of the things you find, uh, you know, we paid all of that ourselves. Now we're buying the books ourselves, and we're actually paying the import duty and the postage ourselves, and so the store is virtually running on its own. We hired our own security guards, but in Liberia, every bookstore, there's no real Christian bookstores. There's, there's only one now that has come up after we started. But every bookstore, even secular, they always tape their book shut. You go into a store, you can't open the book to even look through it. And I said to our workers, we're not doing that. We're going to leave the books on tape and we're going to put chairs in and let people come in and sit and read if they want. No, no, this, they'll not buy. They'll not. They, they did buy. We have them coming in. Where there's, a, there's, a, there's a Bible seminary, a Baptist seminary near our place. And people are, students come in and they sit and read, but people are buying and the Lord has blessed the store. One of the amazing things about the store is people come in that would never come to our church. Many, many Pentecostal people. And they would come in all the time and, and they will ask for books. Uh, how do I interpret my dreams? And we've trained our workers not to fight with them, not to kick them out the door, not to, but to say, you know, we don't have that book, but let me show you what we do have and to teach them. And show them that you don't rely upon dreams. You rely upon the objective authority of the word of God that's actually interpreted by the grammatical, historical way of interpretation. That's a seminary class you'll get. But words mean something, in other words. And they all have the same meaning and definition. And you can basically read the Bible. It's, a, it's like the guy who repairs the refrigerator. 
And he has a manual. He, you know, one repairman doesn't do one thing and another does another thing. No, the manual, words mean something. He can read it. And so you can read the Bible. It's when you want to force your interpretation upon the Bible. And so the people come in and they learn. We found people are coming from other countries because our radio signal goes into the Sierra Leone and the Ivory Coast. And the Lord has really blessed the ministry. But that made me think, and I'm conscious of my time, and I'm just going to bring a, a brief thought uh, at the end here. You're really getting my sermon tonight. You know, Dr. Cairns in Greenville, South Carolina, he used to do historical sermons. So I'm not that far off. And he sometimes used to do them Sunday night. This is the blessing of what the gospel does. But really, uh, that response from the radio station made me realize that if the commercials are bringing these people in, why not do Let the Bible Speak? And so we did. We took Dr. Alan Cairns's messages that he had preached. Some of you will know the book that he wrote called Chariots of God. And it's a book about the Ten Commandments. Maybe you don't know it because the title doesn't tell you what it is and so you've never read it. But it was a series of messages that he preached in the church in Greenville, South Carolina, explaining the relation of the law to the gospel. And then, as I was explaining this morning about justification and sanctification, and he went through each of the commandments. Some of the stuff that I said this morning is based on some of those things I learned when sitting under his preaching. We began to air those things in Liberia across the whole country. And obviously some of those things touch on the government. You know, your mission board makes it very clear that missionaries are not to involve themselves in politics in foreign countries. I said to the mission board here, I agree with that as long as you don't mean that what I'm preaching is not going to pinge upon politics. It will. I, I will be knocking on the door of the president of the country. That's the reality. When you preach, and I know the mission board, they didn't mean it. They just mean you're not going to be voting or holding banners to elect someone in office in Liberia as a foreigner. But the fact of the matter is that the, the gospel does that. And so when Dr. Cairns would preach, he was applying the gospel to the life of those that were in the government offices. And it was tremendous to hear him go through the Ten Commandments that they aired across the whole country every Sunday. I came back here in June and I talked to your board members about the possibility of us starting our own radio station. One of the unique things about Liberia is they have FM frequencies that are available. Now, there's only so many frequencies on an FM band. They only use odd numbers. So it's 94.5.7.9. You know, they don't do 0.6.8. They don't, that's not the way it works. You go to America, you try to get an FM frequency, there's a 30,000 person waiting list. You'll never get it. You have to spend millions to buy someone else's radio station that's already established. In Liberia, it's not like that. And so they're still available. And so I approached Let the Bible Speak about that, but I made the point that you're going to have to spend a tremendous amount of money on advertising, which is just because you get on the radio. No one's going to go from the government station to yours. And so they decided, let's test the waters. Let's try to see about um, broadcasting more on the government station, on the large Christian station. Let's do it every day. And so that's what we've started to do. And so our radio broadcast, it actually airs four times a week on the large government station. That's all the slots they have available. And seven days a week on the Christian station. Now, they wanted some response, but in Liberia, because of the war, there's no, there's no uh, mail service. They can't send letters. So what I did was I went to the mobile phone company, and I got golden numbers. So anybody in the country can text us, double six, double four, double two. We've been getting a number of texts from people that are listening to the broadcast. And the Lord is using 
uh, that ministry and it's opened up a great door and i i just ask you to pray if you would for us that the lord would help us as we go forward in the work one verse here that uh, i want to mention just in closing is in first corinthians i won't read the passage but if you ever do read this passage here in first corinthians chapter one you'll take note of the fact that paul seems to divert into a different subject as he's talking about division in the church he actually says as he's preaching and people claim they're following you know they're 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 siding with paul in verse 17 he says christ sent me not to baptize but to preach the gospel and then he says not with wisdom of words lest the cross of christ should be not made of none effect and he begins to talk about the wisdom of this world and he says the world by wisdom knew not God, but it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And then at the very end, he says, Christ is made unto us in verse 30. 30, He says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, whom of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When you think about the subject of wisdom, as I said this morning, missionaries need wisdom. But that's really a gospel word too, because Christ is made unto us wisdom. And what does that really mean? It means that in the world among sinners, nothing at all makes any sense without a knowledge of God. Even when you think of what the gospel is, what is the gospel? Is it just going to heaven? No, it's not just going to heaven. It's knowing God. That, that's what heaven is. This is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And when you think about that in the scripture, that Christ has made unto you wisdom. Sinners know nothing in this world apart from God. If you are a young person here and you go to Queens University and you study different subjects, nothing makes sense. Even engineering makes no sense without God. What do I mean by that? Because I understand that I can't just build a bridge off the top of my head and I'm going to say, well, I'll just do it this way. No, There's order, there's design, God created laws, we have the laws of nature, that bridge is going to collapse, that building will fall, unless you understand gravity, unless you understand geometry and trigonometry, and even as you travel into space and calculus and all those things, God made that. God created all those things. And that that is what you're dealing with when you deal with wisdom. What is really wisdom? One of the good ways to define wisdom is to go to the secular university. Now, you're not going to take their answer, but go sit in a philosophy class. What is a philosophy class? Well, uh, phileo is the word uh, wisdom, uh, uh, or or, or it's the word actually love. Uh, Sophia is the word uh, wisdom. Philosophia, the love of wisdom. Well, when you sit in a secular class, what kind of questions do they ask? You know, they talk about metaphysics, they talk about epistemology, knowledge, and what is all this about? Well, that, that, they're the questions they ask. Why am I here? Who am I? What is life about? What is the meaning of everything? And of course, the world by wisdom, they don't know the answer to that. They don't know God. You can't define anything correctly without a knowledge of God. It doesn't make any sense. The, the Bible is very, very clear that the, 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 the world by wisdom Uh, What they believe is absolute foolishness from Romans 1. But when the gospel come, it opens the mind of men. Why am I here? Because God created me. Where am I going? Well, either heaven or I'm going to hell. 
And the fact of the matter is, that's true wisdom. It is Christ himself. Men cannot, life makes no sense apart from a knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. One of the things that you find then, as you think about wisdom and what true wisdom is, is that men can never come to a true knowledge of life apart from the power of God. The world by wisdom knew not God, and yet it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save men, them that believe. And you think about that all through this passage. Look, look down there in verse, chapter 2 and uh, verse 9. Notice what it says there. Well, pick it up in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and where you uh, see very plainly where Paul says he's not going to use the wisdom of this world. Verse 4 of chapter 2. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He's talking about those philosophers that he would have dealt with. Obviously, Corinth was near the area of the Greek philosophers. And he's, he goes down and he speaks, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Verse 7, even the his, hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They, they were trying to get rid of Christ, and yet... Christ was not just the way, not just the life, but he was the truth. Anything they understood had to be related to truth. And so what you find then very quickly, he says, verse 9, as it is written, as he's quoting the Old Testament, I hath not seen. And that's a description of the ungodly. I hath not seen. They do not see. They have eyes, but they do not see. They don't see truth. They don't see what life is all about. They don't understand the meaning of life. Nor ear heard. Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, but God hath revealed to them unto us by his Spirit. It's talking about the Spirit of God that opens the eyes of your understanding that you might know what is the hope of your calling and all that goes with that. And so when you think about the gospel and you think about life, you're really recognizing that apart from God and a knowledge of God, you cannot know anything rightly. Your life will be empty, and life is empty. You look in Psalm 49, and it describes for you, if you just turn there for a minute, Psalm 49. And you look and you take great notice of the fact that the, the ungodly, verse 10, well, verse 6 in Psalm 49, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom. You go down further, for he seeth, verse 10, that wise men die, like why the fool dies, and the brutish person dies and perishes, and they leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses will continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They even call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor, he abides not. He's like the beast that perishes. This their way is their folly. And yet their offspring, their posterity, approve their sayings. You think of the ungodly. It's absolute foolishness. They can't take their money with them. Anything that they do in life, it's all about accumulating money or even fame or position. None of those things go with them. And they would profess that they're very, very wise. And the Lord says professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. Because without Christ, money and position and job and all of that, it means absolutely nothing. The pharaohs have proven that to us when we go to dig up their graves. And, and you look at their graves. And all that gold is in, in, in there with the, 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 the mummified body of the pharaoh. And he's not reincarnated. He has not come back. 
All that stuff that he accumulated in this life, it means absolutely nothing. The only thing that means anything is Christ. You know, God has given us, Peter says, all things that pertain to life and godliness through a knowledge of him. When we talk about wisdom, we're talking about knowledge. When you think about that, what the scripture tells you is that wisdom cries out, Proverbs 8. Doth not wisdom cry? And understanding put forth her voice. And the world, apart from the wisdom of God, the world cannot know anything apart from Christ. And it's my prayer that as we think of missions and we go into all the world and preach the gospel, that we make that clear to people. You might think as you go to Africa, these people are from a different culture, and therefore they're not trying to accumulate wealth like we who are on the rat race here of trying to accumulate wealth, but they are. In many ways, they're the same people, but they just have a completely different background and mindset. And our prayer is to show them Christ. Because when you think about the gospel, we're talking about eternal life. We're talking about a knowledge of God. And God shows men how to live. In wisdom, God shows men how they ought to live. That's very important. Paul the Apostle never set aside how men are to live in this life. As a matter of fact, in the scripture, that was one of the great proofs and evidences that a man knew the Lord. So it's very important that you see people that come to Christ, that there's a change in their life. That's the evidence that they know Christ. And so therefore, when the wisdom of God, when a true knowledge and understanding comes upon their heart and their mind, you ought to see a great change in their life. In Liberia, I have a great concern. I was saying to someone today that I do wonder whether hardly any of them really do know the Lord. If you would have gone back in your country in revival times, you would have questioned people that don't come to the prayer meeting. That's the way it was in revival days. I was not saying that though not everybody that comes to the prayer meeting, if they don't come, they're, they're, they're not saved. No, no. But there must be an evidence and a work and a change in the life. But sinners, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 makes it very clear, down the bottom of the chapter, the natural man, he receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them, their foolishness unto him. Yet the Lord by his mercy hath revealed them unto us. It's my prayer as we labor in these foreign countries that the Lord will open up his word uh, to our hearts, uh, or rather to the hearts of sinners, and help us to have an understanding to preach to them. I uh, would just covet your prayers as we continue to labor there in Liberia, and as the Lord helps us, I trust that it helped you to get something of a perspective of the work in Liberia, and you'll take that upon your heart as we continue to labor there. Joanne and I, in the will of the Lord, are going to go back on May 8th. As our brother said, we're trying to get a female dog back there, a German Shepherd, and our hope is to breed, actually, the male and the female that we are hoping to bring, the, the two of them. And we pray, I, I, it's funny to ask prayer for a dog and ask that we could get them to breed, but the reality is it costs us 10000 U.S. dollars per month to put two missionaries on the ground in Liberia. Now, Kenya is far more, <laughs> but that's just the way it is. And my thinking is if we can fray some of that cost, I'm sure we could get $2,000 per pup. Uh, because there's 10,000 Lebanese people who are the businessmen in Liberia. And they're always asking, do you have any puppies? Do you, they see our dog, and our dogs are massive. And so someone kindly gave us a, another dog that's from a police line as well. It's a, the largest female German Shepherd I've ever seen. And so if the two of them come together, we may get some very, very good pups that people would buy. So pray for us as we try to get back 
Uh, it'd be easy just to get a flight ourselves, but we have to drive to Belgium because there's no plane big enough uh, to put the dog in cargo. And so we have to drive to Belgium, and so we need someone to drive with us or, so they can take the vehicle back. Because when you get to Belgium or that part of Europe, I think the, the steering wheel goes onto the other side of the car. So they're not going to let you leave the vehicle at a rental place there, a car rental place, because no one will rent it. And so we're trying to get the dog out there. Thankfully, we got a couple offers already, volunteers, but we need to do it economically uh, as well. So we appreciate your prayers. All right, let's close our meeting in a word of prayer. Let's all seek the Lord's face. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the mercy that thou hast shown to us and bringing us to the gospel. We thank thee, Lord, that you've called us as a church to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We know, Lord, we've been commanded to get out of Jerusalem after the gospel's been preached there and to go into uh, Judea and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. We pray that, Lord, as we go, that you would give us great wisdom as we deal with the ungodly around us and that the gospel that we preach would be unto them the wisdom of thee. We thank thee, O God, this day that Christ has opened the eyes of our understanding. We thank thee, Lord, that he's illuminated us in a knowledge of Christ. We thank thee that in knowing Christ, we can know all things that pertain to life and to godliness as we're called even not just to be saved, but called to serve thee in this life and honor thee, whether we're farmers or whether we're preachers. And we ask tonight if there are any that are outside of Christ and that they do not even have that wisdom and yet they're looking to themselves. Lord, might they realize that the world by wisdom knew not God, but it pleased thee by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And we ask, Lord, that people would recognize even today that left to themselves, they're actually foolish. And the foolishness of thee, even thou didst say, is wiser than men in all of their conceits. And we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst open the understanding of any sinner that's here this very night. O oh God, we pray that you would dismiss us from thy house with thy blessing. Lord, write this word and this report upon our souls. Help us to pray for those in these countries that have drifted far, far away and they might come to a knowledge of thee. Dismiss us now with thy blessing, O Lord. Keep us in thy fear, we pray, in Christ's name. And for his sake and glory we ask it. Amen.